Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks. This week we talk you through the week that everything kicked off. Parliament returned and there were some scandals. So we run through all these stories, whether it's politician pay, EU fake news, there was a lot of that this week, and we even talk about a scrap between Andrew Neil and Owen Jones. Without further ado, here's the show. My name's Tom Harwood, and once again I'm joined by founder and editor of Guido Fawkes, Paul Staines, and reporter Christian Calgi. So this week started off with Parliament finally returning after recess for good, but there was a story that caught our eye a little bit more than that. Something more important, perhaps, that happened too. What was that, Paul? Well, he's certainly full of self-importance. We're talking about Piers Morgan. Finally, as, re- as viewers of the show last week will know... We uh, discovered he'd been to Antigua after uh, ranting for weeks and weeks and weeks that we needed to self-sacrifice and uh, have a virtual Christmas when he got on a plane to Antigua to have a holiday in the Caribbean on the beach. Now, he's, he was ignoring the story for, since um, just after Christmas when I first asked him about it on Twitter until Sunday, when perhaps after seeing our video, he confessed or rather, he sort of confessed. He just said we got some details wrong, which flight he'd be on, etc. But he confirmed that he had been there. The ramifications of that were that finally the tabloid newspapers covered it and it was a global story. Uh, he looks a bit of an idiot, again. And um, Lorraine Kelly had some quite strong words for him. Let's have a look. We can all come together. Whether it's social distancing, wearing masks, shielding, or flying to the other side of the world to spend two weeks in a five-star hotel with 24-hour room service and stunning views, wanking yourself stupid. <laughs> Let's do it together. So, to all of us who sacrificed so much this year, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a prosperous 2021. Yay. Unless, of course, you are a celebrity who broke the rules of lockdown. In that case, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> She didn't name him, and to be fair, it was said on the last leg a Christmas show, but I wonder who she had in mind. Wow, well, that was quite the start to the week. I think he confessed that on Sunday, so we were rip roaring and ready to go for Parliament to return on Monday. And back in Westminster, there was immediately um, a bit of a slip-up from the Labour Party. Um, we got forward a, forwarded a press release from the Labour Party that accidentally, in true thick of its style, included the entire conversation from the internal Labour Party team uh, underneath it. Now, this was including sort of what terminology to use, which bits of information to include in the press release. At one point, they actually said it was misleading. Their own analysis might have been misleading if they presented it in one way versus the other. So this was uh, an absolutely glorious leak. We love it when this sort of stuff happens. And of course, we had to play that classic clip from the thick of it, where Glenn Cullen does exactly the same thing. <laughs> hey! 2,000-year-old man. Why the fuck did you send the whole email? Huh? You were supposed to redact it. Send the top email, not the whole fucking exchange. Jesus Christ on a crystal meth binge! Terry and I sent what you gave me. Terry? Why the fuck? The only reason I never asked Terry for help is to shoot me if I ever ask Terry for help! 
Now, when we put this up, uh, Labour HQ were quick to get in contact with me to say, um, to argue that it wasn't misleading because the final version of what they sent out clarified something in the footnotes. But it was very clear from the conversation that they were worried about how it was presented and they needed to spin it in the right way for it to be correct. So it's not their finest moment. And of course, I think my favourite part uh, of the, the leak was undoubtedly when uh, a member of the Southside staffers referred to incarcerated prisoners as prison users uh, in true, again, you know, it's like quiet bat people or something else from the thick of it. Uh, and uh, it wasn't the only uh, sort of loony left news speak or Wellian news speak we had this week because we also had Zara Sultana uh, in Parliament asking the vaccine minister uh, Nadim Zahawi whether we could prioritise jabs for, well, prison users, as the Labour Party might say. And uh, thankfully, the government is not bowing to that particular social justice cause. That's amazing. She was actually asking that people who have been incarcerated in prison get prioritised above policemen or, or teachers or other essential workers in, in phase two. Mm. It's like, I mean, it's re really like she's trying to lose her seat. She only has a 401 majority. Um, so <laughs> goodness knows what's going to happen at the next election there. Now, of course, that was in a select committee, but in the main chamber of the House of Commons on Monday, there were some stern words from the Speaker with regard to most MPs from most parties around the House sitting in the House of Commons not wearing masks. Now, these are the same MPs who've mandated that members of the public should wear masks in enclosed spaces, in public, in shops, in this sort of thing. And yet they were there sitting breathing heavily, um, sometimes snoring, I think, on those green benches, not wearing them at all. So Lindsay Hoyle had this to say. Can I just say to members, wherever possible, please try and wear masks all the time, apart from obviously when we're speaking. So please bear that in mind. And it was quite funny to watch the front benches of both sides, both uh, Labour MPs and Tory MPs, quickly get their masks out of their pockets and put them on. And for those of you who are watching us on YouTube right now, we're playing this, uh, these clips of all these MPs sort of hurriedly getting out their masks and putting them on their faces. Uh, quite sheepish. The other drama that's been happening in Parliament within the last week was when we exclusively revealed that Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, has killed off Hillary Benn's Remainer committee. Uh, Hillary Benn had been the chairman of the committee for scrutinising the future relationship with the European Union. Of course, a committee that's very much redundant and the rules set out that it was going to be killed off uh, halfway through this January. Uh, Hillary Benn ex asked for a six-month extension, which actually by uh, Hillary Benn's standards is quite a short, protracted extension uh, of, a, of a Remainer interest. Uh, but Jacob Rees-Mogg rejected it. So that not only kills off the committee, but also uh, really badly impacts Hillary Benn's personal finances because he gets a substantial uh, 16, 17, 18,000 um, salary bonus for being the chairman of that committee. But far from Hillary Benn losing some taxpayers' money, there are some Labour councillors up in Enfield who were determined to take back some more councillor money, some taxpayers' money for themselves. This, of course, is a story that you might remember us running in the summer of this proposed 
pay hike for all of these councillors on Enfield Council, in some cases getting an extra £7,500 of taxpayers' money each. Well, there was one Labour councillor in Enfield who did not agree with that pay rise and voted uh, or, or abstained from the vote. She refused to participate in that bout of potential cronyism. Well, what we revealed about her this week is that as a result, the Labour group suspended her from the group. She lost the whip simply because she refused to back pay rises for politicians. And that's why this councillor, as, as viewers of the video can see, has been mocked up as Guido's hero of the week. The Taxpayers Alliance actually got involved and lauded her as well. So never suggest that Guido Fawkes isn't politically balanced when there are councillors or politicians doing the right thing from whatever party we're here to laud you. Talking of balance, our old friends at the BBC are up to their Brexit trickery. Again, last week we mentioned that they had a doom-laden blog that was starting on the first day of the ports reopening after Christmas uh, in the new year, uh, which they closed down pretty sharpish when there was no chaos at the ports. Anyway, they had a, another story uh, focusing on the ports this week, and they used to illustrate it a picture showing trucks queuing up back and a long way and, uh, you know, the report didn't actually tally with what was going on. And that was because the picture was from September during the French port strike, which obviously did lead to uh, delays at the ports. Uh, strangely enough, the BBC press office wasn't very helpful when we asked them why this happened. But we did notice a few changes in the story as the morning wore on until eventually they had this picture of one truck going through the port. Well done, BBC. And... and <laughs> and also, I mean, one of the other de one of the other details that changed was that uh, the author, the original author, Faisal Islam's name, was surreptitiously removed uh, from the article altogether. Such was his embarrassment, I guess, with the output. It is remarkable but that for the BBC to write a story about some sort of Brexit crisis, they use a picture of the port of Dover while we were still under the rules of the European Union. Um, it's completely 180 <laughs> the wrong way around. The, the ironic thing was, elsewhere on the BBC website, under their reality check uh, uh, title, you know, headline, there was an actual story that said, actually, there isn't any problems uh, at the port. So uh, <laughs> one hand, they have so much money that they can contradict themselves in two different reports on the same day. You know, typical. Talking of the left-wing press, the Guardian and the Independent were, were really out to one-up the BBC this week. Um, at the weekend... They ran a, a story about the UK using Brexit as a pretense to legalise bee-killing pesticides. And as any MP will tell you, uh, for some reason, bees are a hugely emotive issue. So this was all over social media. It will have filled uh, their inboxes with the anger. Turns out it's not quite true, uh, because far from the independent headline that we were using Brexit to legalise this bee-killing pesticide, uh, we revealed that 10 European Union countries have authorised its use in the last few years, uh, including uh, Belgium and uh, Spain, I believe. Uh, so actually, the, it's, it's entirely legal under EU law. It has been used. France has also legalised it. And the department and DEFRA are very much reassuring that 
uh, essentially without this uh, emergency use. There, there's another there's another virus in the ascendancy. Thank goodness, not one affecting humans, but it's uh, affecting Britain's sugar beet. And if we don't use it, then yields are down, uh, you know, ten, um, ten multiple of ten percent on on the years before. But the Brexit lies aren't limited to The Guardian, the BBC and The Independent. Because, of course, France as a country has been busy boasting about how well it did in the EU negotiations on fish. But Mr Macron's boasts and spin don't really stand up to scrutiny. This week, the Irish government released a report of the percentage of quota share by value that all the EU coastal states will lose to the UK at the end of the fishing transition in four and a half years. So really what happens is the average EU coastal state has lost 10% of its fish to the UK. So that's um, accumulating quite a lot because that's 10% each. The average uh, EU coastal state would be decimated um, in 4.5 years in terms of their fish quota. And so all of that fish is coming to the hands of UK fishermen. Now this uh, obviously is just a numeric refutation of the spin that's coming both from the French government but also from the SNP who are somehow trying to suggest that Scottish fishermen can catch less fish despite the fact that their quotas are expanding. Um, So this was a very useful, handy, refuting document, not from the UK government, but from the government of an EU member state. And desperate to rejoin that organisation are the majority of Labour MPs. That's according to the Canterbury Labour MP, Rosie Duffield, who told the Huffington Post within the last week uh, that the majority of her fellow Labour MPs are desperate to rejoin the EU at heart and even went so far to bravely accurately say that she is representing the Liberal elite. Let's have a listen to that. The majority of the Parliamentary Labour Party wanted us to remain and were campaigning really hard on that and towards the end almost all of those people had signed up towards a people's vote. So um, the majority of us you know, we, we don't need converting again. We've done all that kind of gelling together, if you like. It, it was it was pretty hellish, you know, voting last year, um, two, three in the morning on these deals and things and all the amendments we put forward. So all of that hurt is still there. We're still desperate to rejoin if we possibly can, I think, at heart. But yeah, it doesn't it does depend on negotiating with Labour Party policy. Yeah. And, and w- would the end goal then to, to be to get to get the leadership to back rejoin or would it be something like single market membership or, or, or something, you know, closer relationship with Europe? Certainly a closer relationship. And then there are people like me who want to rejoin, obviously. But I think, you know, getting those bits back, even in increments, is better than nothing. You know, we're going to all see that this is going to be not very good for trade. Would you join the euro? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, actually. I mean, in a way, why not? In a way, why not at least look at it? I'm not an economics expert. I'm not going to pretend to be. But um, that it could be on the table, couldn't it? Yeah. Obviously, this was pretty embarrassing for Keir Starmer, who's been trying to rebrand himself and move on uh, to try and reconnect with Middle England, who had to go on the Andrew Marr show 
uh, and not only uh, become this enthused Brexiteer saying that there is no case uh, for rejoining the EU, he's also formally broken with one of his main Labour election pledges, which was to reintroduce freedom of movement. Matter of free movement of people. Huge numbers of people in the Labour leadership election and in the country voted for you on the basis that you would do that because you told them you would do that. The Daily Mirror asked you in specific terms, if you become Labour Prime Minister, will you bring back freedom of movement of EU citizens to the UK? And your answer was yes, Look, of course. Andrew, what I'm saying is this. We've had, what, four years of negotiations with the EU. The last thing anybody wants, including the EU, is to start again from scratch with this treaty. We have got to, for better or for worse, thin treaty though it is, we will inherit that treaty when we come into government in 2024. So, so you won't reintroduce free movement. You said that back in, in March, in January last year, so not that long ago. And also it was the sixth of your ten pledges that you were going to bring back free movement. And now you're saying, no, I won't. Well, Andrew, what I'm saying is we've negotiated a treaty, or the Prime Minister's negotiated a treaty. That now is the basis of our relationship with the EU. We didn't know what that was until we saw it just before Christmas. We now know what it is. It's thin. It's not what was promised. But whether we like it or not, that is going to be the treaty that an incoming Labour government inherits and has to make work. And, I think quite and a lot it, is not, it is not being straight with the British public to say we can come into office in 2024 and operate some other treaty. We have to make that sure, treaty but it's, work. It's quite a moment to drop a pledge as big as that and say that a future Labour government will not reopen free movement of people. A lot of Labour Party supporters who may have rejoined the European movement and who desperately hope that fight the struggle to rejoin the EU starts here and starts with you. Well, we're very, very disappointed to hear you. I don't you. think there's a case for rejoining the EU. I've said that before. I think I've said it on your um, programme. But, uh, but I... the chaos in the, in the Labour Party uh, didn't stop this week as the Scottish Labour leader resigned on Thursday afternoon, Richard Leonard, uh, has just stepped down with immediate effect and we'll have to see how that plays out. But the, uh, the playing field of, of Scottish politics is changing rapidly because this week we saw the launch of uh, Farage and Tice's new outfit, uh, Reform UK, uh, that launched uh, on Monday morning and we were trailed with a, a very exciting uh, surprise in store. It was almost like the old UKIP style defection unveilings. Uh, and I heard that it was going to be a Tory MSP uh, and was looking into it. And it occurred to me uh, that the former Tory MSP who ran for the leadership last year, Michelle Ballantyne, had resigned uh, from the Tory party uh, a few months ago and was very much singing from the same hymn sheet. So we floated that idea and lo and behold, a few hours later, she was unveiled as the new leader of Reform UK in Scotland and their first member of the Scottish Parliament. Yes, I think we got a bit more confident in that assertion because um, she's normally quite responsive when, um, I, I mean, <laughs> um, we've, we've talked before in the, in the past, especially around the um, Scottish leadership election, and, um, and suddenly she wasn't replying to the texts just before the announcement, which, which gave us a bit of a clue. Now, sporadically on Guido Forks, we run a segment that we like to call Twitter Bitch Fight of the Week. And there was a spectacular one that blew up on Wednesday night and Thursday morning um, between Andrew Neil and Owen Jones. Now, this isn't the first time they've had a back and forth. We've seen both uh, on This Week, back when Owen Jones was a young 
uh, independent columnist um, and, and got confused about the difference between people who have a million pounds and people who earn more than a million pounds a year, which is quite a significant difference. And he seemed to have muddled up people in the cabinet over that. And the next time he was on This Week, he absolutely went for Andrew Neil for being the chairman of The Spectator, and a magazine that broadcasts a broad array of opinions, some of which Owen finds disagreeable. Now, he included Andrew Neil in his Guardian column, this week, which was supposedly listing all of these conservatives who had been cheerleaders for Donald Trump and suddenly turned around to uh, disavow him. Now, anyone that's read the Twitter feed of Andrew Neil from the last four years will know that this is not a man who has had much nice to say about Donald Trump. Uh, people might remember even the interview of, of other anti-Trump Republicans in the United States, like Ben Shapiro, who Andrew Neil absolutely eviscerated in an interview. Um, I think Ben Shapiro probably got his brief a little bit wrong in terms of who he thought was interviewing him. But nevertheless, it was extraordinary to see Owen Jones try and go for Andrew Neil in terms of who he has supported in US politics. I, th I think this is the third round of uh, public bickering between Andrew Neil and Owen Jones and in all sense of the word it's a heavyweight versus a lightweight and doesn't go down very well but the wider point I think is that Owen doesn't seem to get that in a publication it's okay to have people who disagree and have different opinions we don't all have to follow one line um, you know and for myself I can recognize that Trump for instance on the deregulation and tax cuts I quite like that I just thought he was a bit of a nutcase and, and I quite enjoyed the entertainment that he provided over the years but I thought perhaps inciting um, sedition and overthrow of the US Constitution not such a good idea uh, I mean it's not all black and white but most of all to try and pretend that something written in a magazine that seemed that is chaired by someone means that that's their opinion is going to end you up in a very peculiar place because there are often very contradictory things written in a whole host of publications uh, and it doesn't mean that the people who chair the board of that organisation endorse everything. Well on that note the three of us want to tell you that we don't endorse anything that anyone else said throughout the course of this programme but thank you so much for listening once again to a Guido Talks episode. Remember you can watch us if you're not watching, if you're just listening on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts you can also watch us on YouTube and don't forget to subscribe and if you really want to leave a five star review that really helps us out. Thank you so much and we'll see you again next week. Bye.